everybody, and welcome to the third episode of my as-yet-unnamed experimental podcast, uh, where I'm doing projects for my last few classes of seminary, but exploring um, themes of uh, Bible and theology and pop culture and news and politics um, and whatever I feel like doing. But in these first few episodes, uh, we're talking about Um, theology and biblical themes. This episode is called If We Don't Know History, We're Doomed to Repeat It, and I'm going to talk about Mark and Matthew and empire, imperialism, anti-imperialism, the importance of context. It's going to be fun, so stay tuned. The first thing I'm going to talk about is the importance of context and taking the, the text, the gospel, on its own terms. Then we'll talk about uh, imperialism and anti-imperialism in Mark and Matthew. And finally, um, I'll do a little bit on how Mark and Matthew have been interpreted and used, uh, especially in the last century or so, um, how it has contributed to um, to liberation in, in powerful ways, but also um, to the kind of colonial missional ethos that we see in some strains of Christianity. So let's get started. First, we're going to talk about context. Uh, If there's one thing I've learned in seminary, it's that context is everything. So um, we'll talk about literary kind of criticism, narrative criticism a little bit first, and then we'll talk about the contexts of Mark and Matthew. Um, so in the chapter on narrative criticism uh, that we read, uh, we hear that um, language is not only symbolic, but that symbols have to relate to something. So when we're reading a text, we need to realize that the symbol not only needs to relate to the rest of the text as a whole, but that the symbol may mean something different for the text than it does to us today. Um, For example, uh, one fun example, okay, fun in scare quotes, that I can think of is that the word um, translated as homosexual in some of our translations of the Bible today didn't actually exist when the Bible was written. Homosexual in English, was only coined in the late 19th century. So uh, the word in Greek and Hebrew couldn't translate to homosexual before that time um, and and therefore has to be something different than what we mean by homosexual because the word just didn't exist. The second thing about language is that it's a cultural code. So the the words as symbols mean different things across different cultures. And across different times. So when we are looking at the texts written in the first and second centuries, um, we have to be careful to remember that language changes. Um, and it changes across different cultures. It changes across history. Uh, so we have to do careful interpretation when we're, t- when we're considering the, the language of the Bible. Um, the th- The third thing I want to point out from this chapter on narrative criticism is that uh, every text has um, an implied audience. So we've 
started to understand that um, current contemporary Christians are not the intended audience of the books of the Bible, but there is an implied audience. So each book has its own um, intended audience. There's also an implied author. And I think it's important to remember that the author and the narrator and the characters are distinct from one another. So the author might have a point of view and an agenda. The narrator might have a point of view and an agenda. And the characters might have different points of view and agendas. So it takes some careful kind of parsing uh, when we're doing biblical interpretation and criticism and study um, to remember all those things. Um, so in uh, the book... Of Mark in the Gospel of Mark, um, there are a few important things to point out. So Mark was written in the late first century, um, in a time of, of real trauma for uh, the Jewish population of Palestine and and of the the diaspora. Um, uh, in 64 A.D., Rome burned. And Nero decided to blame it on Christians. And that's when the major persecution of Christians, when the um, sending Christians into the arena with animals to fight to the death, uh, things like that, that's when that began. Um, because Nero blamed the Roman fire on Christians. Um, a little bit later... Uh, Jerusalem declared its independence and refused to pay tribute to Rome, which was a spectacularly bad idea. I mean, good for them, but uh, it did not turn out well. Jerusalem was under siege for three years and basically was starved into submission. The temple was destroyed in 70 AD, and then a, a couple years later, um, the, the final outpost of this rebellion was just squashed. Uh, at Masada, um, you know that phrase terminated with extreme prejudice. That's that's what happened. So um, Judaism was uh, no longer able to be practiced as it had been. Um, it had to kind of take on a different form, which is closer to the forms of Judaism we have today. Um, but it was a the la the latter half of the first century was a deeply traumatic time for Judaism and for new Christianity too, because many, many, many Christians were Jews at the time. Um, so it's very traumatic for that community. Um, the, I'm going to talk a little bit about the worldviews that we find in Mark as well. So according to uh, Barr in um, his chapter on Mark, um, Mark's worldview was a apocalyptic. So, um, he saw the world in terms of a cosmic struggle between God and Satan. And, um, he, he says that the catastrophic events of the day, uh, were evidence of God breaking into Satan's realm. So Satan was in control of the world, but according to Mark's worldview, 
uh, he was losing his grip. Satan was losing his grip on the world. And the catastrophes were um, evidence of that losing of Satan's grip. Um, Satan was uh, lashing out uh, to try to regain control, but it wasn't working. And this was evidence that God was breaking into uh, that reign. God was uh, going to war against Satan and um, the fighting resulted in uh, just bad news in the world. Um, but these were, according to Barr, the birth pangs of the new age. And all that is really important to remember uh, when we start to talk about um, Mark, the Gospel of Mark itself, and uh, empire and imperialism within Mark. Um, so a little bit about Matthew. Um, the cosmology, the worldview in Matthew is similar to that of Mark, um, but the parallel of the Roman Empire to the Empire of Satan is much more pronounced, according to uh, Stephen Moore in Revealing the New Testament. Um, the inbreaking of God's empire subverts the power of Satan and the Roman Empire, and the um, catastrophic events are indicators of the inbreaking, but also indicators of uh, Christ's imminent return. Um, so we'll talk about that a little bit more when we talk about um, imperialism in Matthew. But again, that's important to remember that the Roman Empire directly parallels the rule of Satan in the world. Okay, so um, a little bit more about uh, the Gospels of Mark and Matthew kind of as whole texts. Um, we'll talk a little bit about Jesus uh, in in those texts. Um, and then we'll move on to uh, anti-imperialism and imperialism in each one. So in Mark, um, Jesus was kind of a, a manifestation of that inbreaking of God's power into Satan's worldly power. Um, Jesus, according to Barr, um, in the first few chapters of Mark, Jesus displayed his power in every dimension. So physical uh, through healings and natural through the calming of the winds and waves and supernatural through the expulsion of demons. Um, he also forgave sins, which demonstrated his authority over that realm. Um, so Jesus has demonstrated that he is uh, the, the manifestation of God's power kind of in the world. Um, so for Mark, uh, Jesus is in the world now and currently winning over the forces of Satan. So Barr says for Mark, the good news is news of present victory. Um, Barr also addresses the, uh, that Jesus is um, not only powerful, uh, but in, in the middle of Mark, pivots to being 
that suffering king that for Mark is the, the epitome of, of who Jesus is. So he comes to earth and demonstrates his power, uh, but then there's another level to Jesus's kingship, and that is um, is self-sacrifice. So in talking about the messianic secret of Mark, the, the sort of non-disclosure of who Jesus is, Barr says that knowledge of Jesus had to take on a two-stage kind of process. You had to be familiar with his power, but then his kind of relinquishing of that power uh, in order to take on suffering and 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 go to go to his death. Um, so the kingdom kind of subverts itself, and uh, and that's really interesting. Now the way that this uh, ties into the context of the time is that. Um, with all that persecution going on in Rome and throughout the Roman Empire of Christians, Mark is saying that kind of the way to subvert the empire and to follow Jesus and to be a good disciple is to submit to suffering. And so for Christians who were suffering, this is, uh, this is gospel, this is hopeful, because suffering meant they were fulfilling their call. Um, now, we don't see the call of discipleship necessarily the same way, um, but if you're under persecution and someone tells you, well, that means you're living up to your call as a, as a disciple, as a follower of Christ, um, that could be really hopeful. I could see that um, being really hopeful. Um, so, again, uh, for... Dr. Moore in revealing the New Testament, he's going to say a lot of this same stuff, but um, he reads Mark as uh, more explicitly anti-imperial. So um, the declaration that the empire of God was at hand uh, or had come near or had had come, um, he says on page 65 of revealing the New Testament that that declaration, quote, may be read as counter-imperial proclamation, a challenge to Roman rule, end quote. He also says that the title, Son of God, was counter-imperial um, because the title Son of God typically referred to the Roman Empire and specifically referred to Augustus Caesar, who was the founder of the empire. Um, so calling anyone else the Son of God uh, is... is uh, running directly counter to that Roman imperial tradition. Um, Dr. Moore again says that the inbreaking of God's empire is going to subvert Satan's authority in the world, but also Roman authority in the world. Um, and that uh, the catastrophic events that we talked about uh, just a few minutes ago, um, their evidence of the end of time and the inbreaking into Satan's power, uh, but also the return of Christ. So for, um, for Dr. Moore, he's going to say that uh, part of the hope of the Gospel of Mark is that... Um, Christ could not be conquered by the power of Satan or by the Roman Empire. 
he comes back. Um, he returns in triumph to conquer the empire that could not conquer him. Um, he is going to reiterate again that suffering is the call of Christianity. Jesus suffered, and so should his disciples. Um, so the persecution by Nero and by Rome is um, a, a way to fulfill that calling. Um, and he also says that one of the themes of Mark is that the empire of God is utterly unlike earthly empires. The empire of God shuns wealth. It shuns status. Um, it's, it, it doesn't value the same things as earthly empires. Um, in Empire and the Apocalypse, Dr. Moore is going to go even more explicitly into the parallel between the Roman Empire and uh, Satan's Empire through um, the exorcism narratives. So Dr. Moore says that um, the specifically the Gerasene demoniac uh, who Jesus exorcised, the demon's name was Legion, the demon got sent into a herd of pigs and ran down into the ocean or the sea, um, that that is an allegory for the Roman Empire. So Legion, the name of the demon, is the, the name of uh, a Roman army unit. Um, and the occupation of the man among the tombs is an allegory for the occupation of uh, Palestinian Jewish territory by the Romans and just as the demon legion needed to be expelled from this man the Roman legions needed to be expelled from the land uh, that was promised to Israel right so um, uh, by exercising um, the demons that that is Jesus demonstrating that uh, Rome also needs to be expelled. But not only Rome, uh, Dr. Moore says that um, collaborators, local elites, need to be expelled as well. And Jesus does this or demonstrates this need by uh, cleansing the temple, by exercising the temple of kind of these imperial values of trade and wealth and status. Um, now, Dr. Moore does say that the Gospel of Mark is much more concerned with these collaborators, the local elites, than Rome, really, in lots of ways. But, um, but he, he says that Rome is, quote, God's instrument, which he employs to punish the indigenous Jewish, uh, Judean elites, close quote. Um, so in that sense, he says, uh, Mark is, less anti-imperial than the book of Revelation, which is overtly anti-imperial, um, but it's, uh, it's also less quietist than the letter to the church at Rome and uh, 1 Peter. Um, now, that's interesting to me because um, both of those letters were written before the failed rebellion and the destruction of the temple. So, uh, both of those letters advise kind of um, submission to authority. But Mark, uh, particularly according to Dr. Moore, Mark is calling for an expulsion 
of the demon Roman Empire uh, from the Jewish territories. Um, so Matthew um, was is very similar to Mark. Uh, it uses Mark as a source, uh, so 90% of what is in Mark is also in Matthew, uh, but Matthew has considerably more to it. Uh, Matthew was also then obviously written a little later, so uh, it takes place a little bit further into the Jewish diaspora. Um, consensus seems to point to it being written in Antioch, which was in Syria, uh, a, a little later, uh, closer to the turn of the second century. Um, and, and its uh, themes and goals are slightly different, although the worldview is kind of the same. Um, the theme of um, Jesus is that, uh, according to Barr, is that he's a, a fulfillment of the law and a founder of a new community. So uh, Jesus is coming, gets placed along Abraham and David uh, in the history of salvation. Abraham founded the nation of Israel. David founded the monarchy. Uh, Jesus is, is coming along to found something new. Um, where, where Mark uh, concentrated on knowing Jesus' status through his deeds and his death, and also a, a little bit focused on his resurrection, um, Barr says that for Matthew, Jesus' birth is just as evident of uh, his status, um, that the new thing that God was doing had happened at the incarnation. So the, the coming kingdom was evident in Jesus' birth. Uh, the miracles also demonstrate Jesus' fulfillment of scripture rather than uh, his mastery of all the different forces. Um, and, and Barr says that for Matthew, good discipleship is found in fulfilling the law, not so much in suffering. Although, uh, following the example of Jesus is really demanding, um, the persecution had had sort of stopped by that time. Nero was gone. Um, so, so discipleship was more about living up to a certain standard rather than suffering for the sake of, of Christ or the gospel. Um, Matthew also does a couple of things differently from Mark. So, uh, and this is evidence that it was written at a different time, different place, and for different people than the gospel of Mark. Um, Barr claims that Jesus is founding a new community, um, and as such, uh, he emphasizes different aspects of community than community than Mark might. So Matthew uh, emphasizes the presence of faithful Gentiles, uh, according to Barr. So in the genealogy, you have some Gentiles mentioned, particularly the women, um, Ruth and Tamar. Uh, Rahab are all mentioned in the genealogy in Matthew, um, and they are Gentiles who uh, contributed to the, the lineage of Jesus. Um, so that's important to note because uh, 
the Christian Jews living in the diaspora would have been interacting with Gentiles um, and, and in creating this kind of radical new community, it's important to point out that Gentiles can be faithful as well to the law, uh, to God, and also to Jesus. Um, uh, Barr also points out that the story of the Canaanite woman uh, in other Gospels, the Syrophoenician woman, um, uh, also allows Jesus to kind of make the shift from exclusion, he came for the lost sheep of Israel, uh, into uh, inclusion of people he wouldn't have thought to include before. Uh, so that's an important moment in Matthew, uh, according to Barr. Um, Dr. Moore is going to say that Jesus is, again, the fulfillment of the law. Uh, he calls Jesus the new Moses. Um, so he's, he's the purveyor of this new law and also a liberator. Um, Moses brought the people out of Egypt. Uh, Jesus is going to bring the people um, out of the old and into the new. Um, so uh, Carter um, makes the case that um, Matthew is anti or counter imperial, but in really kind of subtle ways. Um, he says that uh, while the people living under empire would have known every moment of every day that they were living under imperial imperial rule, um, that that instances of that rule would have been everywhere in the money, uh, in the courts, uh, in in every, just in every aspect of of everyday life. Um, Matthew doesn't really uh, subvert that so much as Matthew takes imperial principles and kind of imputes them to God. Um, so he says Matthew is imitative of empire, um, but, but the empire is God's empire rather than, than Rome. Um, but Matthew also is going to subvert Roman imperial principles and substitute God's imperial principles. Um, so he says, this is a great quote, uh, quote, Jesus is presented not only as one who parallels Rome's claims, but as one who rivals and contests central Roman claims. If all authority in heaven and earth has been given to Jesus, it has not been given to Rome. If Jesus manifests God's empire, Rome's empire does not. Rome does not manifest God's purposes, close quote, and this is why the world needs Jesus. So Jesus comes along. Uh, the Gospel of Matthew claims that he is uh, God's son, that he's the new Moses, that, again, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to him. He's the one that's going to bring about the new empire, the Basileia of God, um, which is needed because Rome does not manifest God's principles. Um Roman values are not God's values. And again, God's empire is going to shun wealth and status. Um, it's going to value children. Uh, it's going to change the way people view property and humanity. Um, so uh, again, I think for Carter, Matthew is anti-imperial or anti-Roman. 
maybe more accurately, but uh, more subtly anti-imperial or kind of substitutionarily imperial. Uh, and we're going to talk about Musa Dube's article in a second. And she's going to claim that Matthew is inherently imperial, um, but, but with a different set of values from Rome. Hopefully, with a different set of values from Rome. Um, okay, so, uh, so we've seen um, ways in which our scholars think that Matthew and Mark are anti or counter imperial. Let's talk about a little bit how uh, these texts have been used and abused today. Uh, and what rel relevance they might still have. Um, so Musa Dube is going to say about the Gospel of Matthew that it is inherently um, imperial. And uh, Musa Dube makes this case because of the impact of kind of the Great Commission and the impulse toward mission and evangelism that Matthew has. Um, so Dubé says, uh, the presence of empire is central to the construction of the narrative. They are co-located, um, that, uh, the mission of Christianity grew out of the imperialistic, uh, tradition or understanding or usage, um, that the gospel of Matthew is, uh, imperialistic in its sense of evangelism. Um, her article concludes pretty powerfully with this critique of the Gospel of Matthew. Um, she says, uh, The implied author's stance toward the imperial powers of his or her time presents the imperial rule and agents as holy and acceptable. Its intertextual weaving constructs a politically unsubversive Jesus and encourages travel to distant and inhabited lands, the positive presentation of the empire and the decision to take the word to the nations is born within and as a result of a stiff competition for power over the crowds, Israel, and the favor of the empire. In envisioning the mission to the nations, Matthew's model embodies imperialistic values and strategies. It does not seek relationships of liberating interdependence between nations, cultures, and genders. Rather, it upholds the superior, superiority of some races and advocates the subjugation of differences by relegating other races to inferiority. Matthew's model employs gender representations to construct relationships of subordination and domination as attested to by featuring the Canaanite woman in a story foreshadowing the mission to the nations. The form and ideology of Matthew chapter 15 verses 21 through 28 reflects that of the land possession type scene, thus embracing imperialistic values and strategies as well as employing gender images that reinforce the oppression of women. Um, so uh, Dubé is talking about um, that episode of the Canaanite woman. Uh, that we just heard is the point where Jesus kind of rotates or pivots from <clears throat> exclusion to inclusion. And 
uh, Dubé's critique is that by doing so, uh, Jesus takes on imperial values. Um, so, or at least Christians have done so using Matthew as a, a justification. Um, so Dubé concludes that the Gospel of Matthew is basically okay with empire, or at least with kind of colonization by the new Christian empire. Now, Dubé um, introduces uh, the article by saying um, her context is different from, you know, previous scholarship. Uh, she lived under empire um, and saw the effects of colonization and mission evangelism uh, and kind of imperial rule. Um, and, and so reads the Gospel of Matthew in a different way from others. Um, and the, the Dubé article made me think um, about actually something that uh, Dr. Moore said. Um, he kind of hinted at America as a new superpower, or a, as a, uh, America as the, the world's superpower, um, being like the Roman Empire. And we hear about America being the new Rome kind of a lot, but in a good way. At least we here in the United States hear about uh, the United States being the new Rome in a good way, like we're upholding the values of the republic and democracy and uh, kind of if we're imperialistic, we're benevolently imperialistic. Um, but Dubé's critique uh, calls that into question for me. Um, America as a new Rome, um, you know, according to this critique by Dubé, would be an inherently bad thing. Um, if we're holding values of, of democracy, but we're using those values to kind of colonize the world, uh, that is counter um, to uh, anti-imperialism. Um, and if we are uh, using our sense of exceptionalism to impose our values on other cultures, nations, peoples, um, that's also imperialistic uh, in the worst way. And, and, and Christians, um, especially Western Christians, do that too. So we have kind of colonized the world with this Western notion of Christianity. Um, and, and if the Gospels of Matthew and Mark can be read at all as anti-imperial, then we're not living up to that standard and um, reading Matthew for Dubé as uh, an imperialistic text uh, then has been used to justify further manifestations of imperialism by Western culture specifically and Christianity um, in, in those Western cultures. Our uh, missions to the world have been justified by the Great Commission, um, but we haven't uh, lived into that in 
in good and fulfilling ways. Uh, we're not subverting the values of Rome. We're reifying them. Um, but on the other hand, I think uh, it's, it's easy to say that the Gospels of Matthew and Mark have been used in liberative ways. Um, so the ideas, the idea that God's empire is not the empire of the world, that God uh, is forming new communities and, and new ways of being, um, that God's kingdom is going to be on the side of the poor, uh, kind of over and against the wealthy. Um, I think that those readings have have obviously been influential in, in liberation theology uh, all over the world. Um, you know, Jesus as the new Moses, as a liberator of the people from Egypt, uh, has obviously been inspiration in liberation theology here in the States. Um, so uh, kind of all that to say, you can read the Gospels uh, in multiple ways. Um, and, and it's important to know what you're doing and how you're doing it uh, if you want to say that the Gospels are anti-imperial it's important not to enact a new empire on the world uh, from your own vantage point if you want to say that God's values are not the values of the world and you want to say that you're following those values it's important to actually follow those values um, and if you want to say that the Bible should be anti-imperialistic, uh, then we can't use the Bible to justify our own uh, imperialism, whether through um, kind of socio-political means or uh, mission evangelical means. Um, uh, Dubé points a little bit to being in relationship with other uh, cultures and contexts. Um, and, and heavily critiques the Gospel of Matthew for not doing that, um, where the, the Gospel message, message of Jesus is going to supersede um, any uh, contextual reading. Um, so we have, to, we have to be careful with how we are using and abusing our sacred scripture. Okay, I have talked for a while, um, so I'm going to wrap it up there. Um, Hopefully you've learned a little something about uh, the context in which uh, Matthew and Mark were written, um, themes of imperialism and anti-imperialism in both texts, and, uh, and, and how those Gospels have been used um, for good and bad uh, in a couple of ways um, currently and, uh, and in the time that they were written. So thanks for listening. Um, Pay attention to the feed or, 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 or stop in sometimes and see what I'm doing. Uh, uh, like I said, I'm going on a road trip soon with my mom, so uh, maybe we'll record some conversations um, and, and those will be interesting to you guys. I hope so. I hope you've learned something. I hope I'm getting good grades in these classes. Uh, and that's it. Take care. We'll see you next time. Thank you.